0: Uh, Well, it is a great uh, joy to be with you. I've really enjoyed uh, speaking at the Multiply conferences last uh, week or so. Very much concerned for uh, reaching the people of New Zealand and different cities, including here in Auckland. Um, But for those of us perhaps who are new to the Christian faith or those of us in the congregation, uh, you might well get used to uh, Rowan and other people standing up the front here saying, you know, you've got to go out and speak to the people and, you know, we're going to preach the gospel on the street corners, we're going to plant churches, we're going to fill New Zealand with the good news of Jesus and uh, you kind of sort of nod approvingly but inside you're thinking uh, I'm not going to do that (laughs) Um, or if you're saying bring people to the guest events, bring them to church uh, and you're thinking well why would I do that? Why would I bother? Um, It's all right for you Rowan, you get paid to say that kind of thing but what about the rest of us? We've got friends to lose you know and uh, You're kind of wondering, why would I bother? Well, this passage, uh, written a long time ago now, 8th century before Christ, uh, was uh, given to the people of Israel. It's the account of a vision that God gave to the prophet Isaiah for him to tell to the people, uh, to encourage him, in fact, to commission him to go out and tell the good news um, to the people, and it's a, it's a critical passage because it records for us why it's worth bothering, <clears throat> what the reason is for speaking to other people, to invite people to church, to keep pushing and try and plant churches across London or Auckland or wherever we live. So what I want to do this morning is just um, take you through this, this small part of the passage, show you what it says, and I think you'll see that here are the reasons why it is really worth speaking to other people about Jesus, okay? There are sort of four sections to the passage. The first one is verses 1 to 4. It's the biggest section. And I suppose you might um, summarize it, um, that Isaiah was given a new sense of God's holiness. A new sense of God's holiness. Look with me at verse 1 if you can. My translation is ever so slightly different to yours, but it's basically the same. In the year that King... Uzziah died, <clears throat> well we know that was 740 BC, King Uzziah had been King of Israel for 52 years he was a bit of a legend, he'd built lots of buildings very powerful man although in the later years of his life he'd, he'd got arrogant and proud and got struck down with leprosy, um, but it was like the end of an era, I mean 52 years, long time so the whole nation was feeling very unstable um, I don't know how you kind of guys feel here, but certainly in Europe people are feeling very unstable at the moment, there's lots of changes with a new president and with Brexit and there's noise from North Korea and uh, you know there's a lot of noise from Russia and you, the whole place, the country feels unstable there are bombs going off and people are getting killed You and kind I of think, what's going on? And this was a time when Israel was feeling very unstable, unsure about the, the, the future and um, Isaiah's clearly in the temple he's given this extraordinary vision this sort of dream of, of God and we're invited to listen to the words and to imagine what he saw In the year that King Uzziah died, 740 BC, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. That is to say, there's this throne, there's uh, somebody on it who's the king, that is the king over everything else that's happening. In other words, there is somebody in charge over all the presidents, over all the the prophets, over all the, the kings. There is somebody who reigns on high and he's the Lord. And we're told that he's high and exalted. So, that is huge. Um, and exalted, that means splendid and uh, magnificent. And the, the idea is that this vision fills the entire temple. So um, I don't imagine a, a place perhaps twice as high as this theatre. And just this image of God fills it, no doubt indicating that just as the supreme being is far too big to fit into a few trillion galaxies, you know, you, you, know, you couldn't squash him into to the universe. Uh, he, he kind of is bigger than anything you've ever imagined. And he's seated on a throne. That is to say he's not struggling for his power. He's reigning on high in in absolute unqualified power. He's sitting down. He's not having to wrestle with Satan. Satan's days are numbered. Uh, Nobody questions his power. He's absolutely seated on high. And the train of his robe filled the temple. That is even the cloak on his back, as it were, fills the entire temple. And he's not alone. Above him we're to imagine seraphim. Uh, the word literally means burning ones. Uh, and, and you and I have never seen anything like this. So there's some kind of heavenly creatures. Um, I suppose God can make what he likes, can't he? I mean, if he can make jellyfish and albatross and you know, amoeba, he can make serifs. So he's got these kind of, this army of angels in the sky, and they're on fire. So imagine flaming creatures, presumably, as it were, uh, inflamed by the holiness of God himself. So as God is consuming fire in his holiness, in his purity, uh, these uh, angels hovering in his presence uh, have literally caught fire. And uh, they are very strange. They've got six wings. With two wings, they cover their faces, which is a, a sign of reverence in Hebrew thinking. That is to say, um, nobody stares at God. You know, Nobody has an argument with God. When anybody ever meets uh, God or any representation of God, they just fall flat on their faces in fear. You're not going to have an argument with God. Oi, oh God, what do you think? You know, that's not going to happen. They cover their faces to hide. With two, they cover their feet, which is an expression of, of uh, humility, of sorrow for sin. In other words, even these creatures that are on fire in their purity feel ashamed before the presence of God, and so they hide their feet. And with two, they're flying, as it were, hovering like an army ready to do the bidding of the king. And they're not silent, they're calling to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. It's a um, Hebrew language, it means holiest, that is uniquely holy. And, and the word holy means um, pure and, and different and like nothing you've ever seen before. That is amazing and terrifying. Holy, you're amazing, you're you're terrifying, you're you're, you're unlike anything we've ever seen before. You're special, you're unique. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That is to say, the earth, the universe, every part of it displays something of the greatness of God. Whether it's the massive oceans and the forests and the deserts or the stars or, or the teeming cities and the technology and the jets and the mobile phones. Everything is an expression of the greatness of the living God who empowers it all. And at the sound of their voices, verse 4, the doorposts and the threshold shook. So uh, this is not quiet. It's not whispering. They're bellowing so loud the whole place is shaking. Now, I don't know whether you've been anywhere noisy. I, m- I imagine Eden Park's going to be pretty noisy when the Lions arrive. I'm partly here to pray that the Lions win three. No, I think it's unlikely, but there you go. Uh, maybe Eden Park you've been and it's been, and it's been noisy. I remember um, a few years ago in 2012. It's a long story, but I managed to get some tickets to the Olympics in London. And uh, there I was on Saturday with three of my kids. And it turned out to be the Saturday when uh, the British team won three gold medals in 46 minutes. And, um, sorry, I just better explain for any Australians here. A gold medal is something you sometimes win (laughs) at the um, Olympics. If you do very... Don't worry about it. Your turn will come. Anyway, um, so there we were. There were three gold medals in 46... It's unbelievable. The noise was absolutely insane. I couldn't hear myself think. It was so noisy. It was just the most magnificent spectacle. As uh, Jessica Ennis, you, you know, won a gold medal, and then Greg Rutherford, and, and then Mo Farah. I mean, I don't know if you remember, just the crescendo when Mo Farah was running. And it was just amazing. M- more exciting than anything I've ever seen in sport. And then uh, I turned to my daughter, though, Rihanna, and I said, said, honey, if this is what it's like for somebody who can chuck a spear jump a long way or run around the track a few times, imagine what it's going to be like when the King of Kings walks on stage. And that's what's happening here. It's not just noisy. The whole place is shaking with the bellowing of the angels in the presence of God. In other words, you can't, you can't be in the presence of God and not be excited. You, know, you can't be in the presence of the living God and, and be ho-hum-bored. That is not going to happen. I mean, how terrifying to arrive unforgiven. How terrifying to have this God as your enemy. But how wonderful to be there, captivated by him. And the amazing thing about this, this um, song, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord Almighty, is that you get to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 4, and you know they're still singing it. Exactly the They're still singing it, Revelation 4. Presumably because no one ever gets tired of God. No one ever says, oh, should we ever change a song? Because they just think he's just so eternally wonderful. You just want to keep singing this. And obviously it's... it's Describing an experience, it's describing the fact that God is so unqualifiedly captivating and beautiful and amazing that we're going to be there just enjoying ourselves so much for those who are his people. The other amazing thing about this is that um, in John's gospel, uh, John quotes from this passage. And he says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory. In other words, this is the glory from which Jesus came when God the Son took flesh in order to swap places with us. This is the glory he came from. This is the glory to which he's gone back. And so you see, Isaiah the prophet is just overwhelmed by this vision of the living God. All his senses just assaulted by sudden awareness of the holiness of the living God. And that is the first stage in anyone being willing to speak up for God. You see, mission begins with God. It starts with understanding how incredible God is. Then there's the next stage, second stage. A new sense of sinfulness. It's verse 5. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. See, when Isaiah the prophet, I mean, he is a prophet, he's one of the best, but when he sees the, the almighty God, when he sees the supreme being in all his holiness, it, it's as if he just shrivels inside, just collapses. I'm damned, literally. But the words, I'm ruined, means I, I, I'm just nothing. He just collapses on the ground. It's a reminder that however strong and big we think we are, and I don't know whether some of us here hear of sort of a bit of a big noise in our community, you know, We've made a lot of money or we've got a lot of grandchildren or we've started our own business or we started a church or we're big and physical, we run fast. I don't know, you know maybe you're used to other people thinking you're a bit of a, a big noise. I tell you, when you stand before the living God, you, you will just shrivel and collapse. Nobody stands with the living God and feels confident. He says, woe to me, I'm ruined. And then because he's a prophet, he's supposed to be speaking for God, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He says, I'm filthy. I can't speak for this God. He knows that, he's not saying that he's swearing all the time. What he means is the motivations of his heart. He can't say anything in the right way because his heart's all screwed up. He's filthy on the inside. And he says, the thing is, it's not just like I could get some therapy and improve. He says, I live amongst a people of unclean lips. We're all like this. We're all filthy on the inside. We've all got selfish motives. None of us can speak for this God in the right way. And yet I've seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I know what God's like now. Oh, my goodness. And so he's absolutely overwhelmed with, not just with unworthiness, but fear, because he's filthy on the inside. And the truth is, I don't know about you, but I am too. I mean, maybe you're a lot better than me, but I am not fit for the presence of God. I'm too filthy on the inside. Now, I realize the way that we live in that way is different. We're all different. So um, let me tell you a story to try and illustrate how we're different. Imagine uh, two teachers coming to Auckland. What's, the, what's a good school nearby? Corfe. Corfe. Okay, two teachers coming to Corfe school. No idea where it is, but it's just nearby. And let's just... Uh, they, first job, they've got to find somewhere to live. Let's give them a couple of random names. Let's pick um, Rowan and Lachlan. Okay, it's two names. And um, so they looking in the paper, and they're looking for somewhere to, to go and um, live just near Corfe School. And um, they look in the, in the paper, and there's an advert, and it says, mansion for rent. Um, you know, 60 acres of, of uh, beautiful parkland, uh, huge... Um, uh, mansion, two wings, uh, 40 reception rooms, gyms, sweat rooms, stables, you know, $10 a month. And they think, that's, that's ridiculous. And so, so anyway, they, they, they go, they rock up, and would you believe it? Yeah, it's a Chinese billionaire. He doesn't need the money. He's off on business. He says, listen, Rowan, listen, Lachlan. He says, you're welcome to enjoy my estate. Uh, he said, uh, I don't need the money particularly, but I do want you to stay in touch because it's a complex estate. I'll send you emails, stay in touch. You respond and so on, and I'll help you run the place. And uh, don't forget the rent. It's not much. But uh, I just want you to stay in touch with me, because this is my estate. And then enjoy it. Well, I mean, you know, Rowan and Lachlan love it. And they uh, sort of move in. And they're quite different characters, you see. Rowan is the party animal. And so he takes the West Wing. And uh, pretty soon there's, you know, all-night raves, and there's, you know, vomit on the floor, and <laughs> beer on the furniture, and cigarette marks on the curtains, and... Travelers have moved in, and, and you know, you're absolutely trashing the place. And everybody thinks when the owner returns that he's going to be thrown out. He knows it. Everybody knows it. He's trashed the place. Rowan is going to be thrown out when the owner returns. But the other wing is quite different uh, because Lachlan moves in, and Lachlan is very tidy and smart and middle class and well brought up. And you know he's in bed by nine o'clock and he, he irons his pajamas, <laughs> you know, to make sure that the turn ups kind of. You know, a nice crease, and he kind of polishes the brass handles on the doors. And, you know, he's very quiet. And he's so well behaved and so polite. Everybody thinks, well, when the owner returns, Lachlan will give him the whole place. And then to everybody's surprise, when the billionaire returned, he threw them both out. And no one was surprised about Rowan, because Rowan had just trashed the place. But everyone was really shocked about Lachlan, because he was such a nice, well-brought-up, polite person. And to anybody who bothered to explain, the billionaire explained, he not listen, I know they lived very differently. I know they behaved quite differently, but actually they treated me the same way. Neither of them ever responded to my emails. I kept appealing to them to listen to what I had to say to them, and they never bothered to listen. I don't know whether they thought, they thought I was just stupid to let them run around my estate. I don't know whether they thought that I didn't exist or something. But if they're going to treat me like that, they, they didn't even pay any rent. It was only $10 a month, and they couldn't be bothered to do that. I'm sorry, if they're going to treat me like that, they can't stay. And you'd have to say at that point, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. And Jesus was always teaching that that's the way we are with God. We live in God's world. There are so many good things to enjoy. Many of us have had so many blessings in life, good things. And some of us have trashed our lives. And there's wreckage everywhere and there's relationship, and people have hurt, there's damage. We know we're in trouble with God. Nobody needs to remind us, because there's wreckage everywhere. But there are others of us who are so well brought up, we're so well healed, You know, we're so polite, we're so middle class, we think God God should be privileged and grateful for us to show him any attention. Although, frankly, we've lost touch, we wonder whether he even exists anymore. And Jesus said, if you treat God like that all your life, don't be surprised if you can't stay with him in eternity. Now, that is the way we we live differently, but we treat God the same. Now, that is the problem. That's the filthiness of our hearts. It's the selfishness of our hearts. We don't want God to tell us what to do. Push off, thanks. I'm having too much fun. And uh, this is what Isaiah realized. He stands before the living God. He says, I'm in serious trouble. And This is the second stage in an understanding of why you want to speak to other people about God. It begins with the holiness of God, and then that leads to a fresh sense of sinfulness. Oh my goodness, I'm in serious trouble with God. Some of us really know that. We knew that before we ever came to church. But others of us need to understand that. So secondly, a fresh sense of sinfulness. Thirdly, that now leads to a fresh sense of forgiveness. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hands, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. But let me explain. So this is one of the seraphim, one of these flaming angels in the sky, All right, peels off like a strike jet aircraft and flies down towards the prophet. He must have thought, this is it. <laughs> you know, I'm done for. Here comes the killer. And, and, uh, and as the angel flies down. And instead, the seraphim picks up a live coal you know, it doesn't mean it's living, in other words, um, on fire. So it's a kind of you know, burning hot coal from the altar where sacrifices were made and then flies over towards Isaiah and touches the altar to his lips. Because, of course, that's the point where Isaiah has just been so conscious of his sin. You think, what's going on here? What's happening is, you see, that God is showing that the sacrifice is being applied to his sin. Let me explain. In the, in the temple before Jesus, the temple, you see, was always just a picture of what Jesus would do. And all the sacrifices, all the animals being slaughtered there, like an abattoir, really. But they're all just pictures for everybody to understand that one day, somebody's going to come and die on a cross as a sacrifice. And because of that sacrifice, we can be clean. In other words, the sacrifice needs to be applied to the sin. So I don't know what, whatever your most dreadful sin is. Don't say anything out loud because that would be embarrassing, but I'm sure we can all be aware of things that we are feeling really ashamed of. Some of us quite serious things, perhaps. Some of us, it's it's just filthy habits. For others others of us, it's something dreadful we've done. And you wonder, can anything be done about that, that that dirty stain on my life? And the sacrifice, you see, is applied directly. And you see what the seraph then says? See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. How does that work? Let me try and explain. Um, a few years ago now, a couple of years ago now, in, um, in Britain, in uh, January, there are what's called the, the kind of awards that are given. And uh, the story emerged of a soldier in the Second World War called Bombardier Robert Key. And um, Robert Key had um, blown himself up. And the British Army records of what had happened were that uh, Bombardier Key was on some um, leave during the Second World War he, in south of France, in Anazin, and that he'd been mucking around with a grenade, pulled the pin and blown himself up, which was obviously a stupid thing to do. And his family were incredibly embarrassed, and um, he was sort of, everyone was rather embarrassed about him. But then the mayor of the town... In Anazin, wrote to the family of Robert Key and said, could we name the central street in our village after Robert Key? And they thought, what's going on here? And then the true story emerged that he hadn't been mucking around with a grenade, that what had happened was there were a bunch of kids playing in the fields and there was all kinds of unexploded ordnance because of the war and a little boy had got hold of a grenade and pulled the pin. He was standing there with a bunch of kids looking at it and Key had yelled at them, charged over, grabbed the grenade, telling them to run, basically taking it into his guts, and the thing had blown up and killed him. And so all the kids were saved, but he had died for them. And that's why he was a legend in those parts, and that's why they wanted to name the street after him. I tell you that story because I think it illustrates for us, you know, I don't know what your attitude is about Jesus, or was when you came in this morning, but lots of people think Jesus is kind of a rather sad mistake, you know. Promising moral teacher got himself killed too early. Very sad. Or even a bit stupid to kind of take on the Roman authorities, you know. Kind of not very clever to challenge the establishment like Jesus did. Got himself killed. And when we discover actually, no, he didn't accidentally blow himself up on the cross. Jesus walked into Jerusalem in order to swap places with us. I mean, the whole, being that the, the whole reason the Supreme Being became an ordinary bloke like us, wandering around in the first century in Palestine, is so that he could swap places with us on a cross. And it's actually fantastic. You see, um, people think it's ridiculous that, that God should be a man dying on a cross. And, of course, Muslims think it's blasphemous. You know, why would God do that? Until you realize the whole reason is that God became one of us so that he could take our place on a cross. And there he was punished for everything we've done wrong. The way we treat God, the way we treat one another. So that we can be treated as Jesus, the sons of God and accepted into heaven. It's a swap, it's very simple. Somebody once said, for God to allow such a sacrifice is grace or kindness. For God to provide such a sacrifice is amazing kindness. For God to become the sacrifice is kindness beyond our understanding. And I wonder whether you know why God did that. Why would God do that? I mean, why would the supreme being, the great holy God, shrink himself down, ordinary bloke, walking around Palestine, Jesus, in order to swap places? Why would he do that? Honesty, it's because he loves you. I don't love you. I hardly know you but God does. And I don't know whether lots of people tell you that every day or whether nobody's told you that for a very long time. But let me tell you the reason why Jesus died on the cross is because he loves you and you're in serious trouble with God and so he came to swap places with you on the cross and he took the blast on the cross so that you can be accepted into heaven as children of God. How good is that? I think it's just brilliant. And the day you realize that he didn't just die for other people, he didn't die for some of those other kind of zealots who go to church, but actually he did that for me. Do you know the only thing you need to qualify to be saved by Jesus? You need to be a sinner. If you're not a sinner, then you have no need of Jesus, okay? Nothing for you here this morning. But if you're filthy on the inside like the rest of us, this is such good news. The sacrifice of Jesus can be applied to your sin. And look at what the result is. Your guilt is taken away. It's like um, you know, some big computer file in the sky and God's just pressed with all the records of your sin and it's a very long file and he's just pressed delete. You know, mobile phone history? Deleted. Gone. There's no more record of anything you've done wrong when you turn to Jesus. And he says, your sin is atoned for. That is to say, made up for. God is satisfied. Everything necessary has been done. The debt has been paid on the cross. Massive debt for some of us. All paid off by Jesus dying in our place on the cross. That is just brilliant. The sense of freedom to have your guilt taken away. Yeah, I've done dreadful... I interviewed a soldier recently at our church, become a Christian. And he's now a, a sort of prison... It's a security officer now. He walked to the prison before, before that. He was in the Scots Guards. And he's a hard man. And, um, and he said to me, Richard, as a public, he said, Richard, I've done dreadful things in my life. But he said, to think every day when I think about Jesus dying in my place on the cross, he said, I can't stop crying. It's so brilliant to be forgiven. So that's the third stage in understanding why you want to talk about Jesus. It starts with the holiness of God. That leads to a fresh sense of sinfulness. Then you're ready for a fresh sense of forgiveness. And then you're ready for a fresh sense of service. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? So it's like he's overhearing God. I mean, what does God chat about? Does he chat about Man United? Does he chat about the Lions series? What does God's God chat about? No, what does he talk about? When God is talking to himself, he talks about whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who's going to reach people? Who's going to go for us and to speak to other people about what we've done for them in Jesus? Who's going to go to Auckland? Who's going to go to this area? Who's going to go to the guys in this city? Who's going to go in London? Who's going to go for us? Whom will I send? And now the prophet says, here am I, send me. Can I go? He volunteers. And wonderfully... God says, verse nine, "Yeah, you'll do. Forgiven sinner, you'll do." He said, "Go and tell this people the message." And the message, because he tells him what to say, you don't just make it up. The message he tells him starts with judgment, but it ends with a savior at the end of the chapter. So there is a message that we've got to somehow explain to our friends. Listen, we're in trouble with God, and of course, the best way to do that is not don't go around pointing the finger at everybody else and saying you're in trouble. Just tell people you've discovered that, you know, I'm in trouble. But God still loves me and there's a saviour and it's wonderful. He puts his hand up he says, go and tell this people. Now, of course, Jesus later on said the same thing. End End of Matthew's gospel. Go and tell people. Go and make disciples of all nations. And the reason that Isaiah was willing to go, the reason why Isaiah put his hand up, The reason he was willing to to serve is because of his fresh sense of forgiveness. And the reason why that was a fresh sense of forgiveness is because of a fresh sense of sinfulness. And you get a fresh sense of sinfulness when you realize how holy God is. Mission begins with God. In other words, for us individually, for you as a church, you need to be a church that's not just banging the drum about going and telling people. It begins with God. We need to be churches that begin with the holiness of God. That then exposes how we're in serious trouble for our sin. That then exposes how wonderful it is to be forgiven. And then you want to put your hand up and say, okay, I'll invite my friends. So as you leave here today, I don't know what that means for you. But if I can just paint a picture for you for a moment and just urge you that this is not a a game. It's not, it's not kind of you know, club building. It's not like you get more money or you don't get points for extra people as you fill up seats. There's something serious going on in Auckland. Um, and it's probably a bit like London. In London, we, we say that London is an unfolding tragedy, a bit like the Titanic. You know the Titanic um, ship? Um, in in uh, 1912, the apparently unsinkable cruiser, the Titanic, if you remember, hit an iceberg and sank, and um, so many people drowned. And um, I don't know whether you know that the reason why so many people... There are four reasons why so many people were lost in that disaster. One is there were simply not enough lifeboats for the ship, for the passengers. Just not enough lifeboats. And we say in London, in the same way, there's not enough Bible-teaching churches. There's just not enough gospel-teaching churches for London. There are huge communities across London with no Bible-teaching church anywhere near it. And in the same way, I imagine in Auckland, you need to start more churches. And I know that's what the whole multiply thing that Rowan's uh, and others involved here are, are all about. Dave Gisbert's too, it's fantastic. They're trying to put more lo- lifeboats into the water for the people that live in this city. We, you need more gospel churches. Secondly, the crew on the ship were untrained. You know, Some of the lifeboats got, got um, destroyed because nobody knew how to use the, use the, the things. And in the same way, we've got to train ourselves, we've got to get help from each other in how to reach those who are lost, those who are drowning in sin all around us. You know, we jabber away saying a whole lot of nonsense and we've got to try and help one another learn how best to talk to our friends, what to say, how to answer questions, how how to invite people sensibly in a way that doesn't put people off. We've got to get some more training. Thirdly, this is kind of the worst, I don't know whether you know, but the Titanic ship, they actually locked the poorer passengers in the lower decks while the wealthy got into the lifeboats. I mean, how appalling is that? And yet in London, most of the wealthy districts of London have got a good Bible church in them. It's the ethnic communities in the poorer areas of London that don't have access to a good church. And that, that is just a shocker. We've got to address that. We've got to start reaching into the communities, the unreached communities of London, because more than half of London is born outside, outside the country. It's an incredibly multicultural place, and we've got to plant churches in those areas. And I imagine in Auckland as well. Not just the upper-middle-class areas. You've got to start churches in the poor areas as well. But fourthly, the biggest reason why so many people died in the Titanic is that the half-empty lifeboats hovered around on the edge of the disaster... lacking the compassion to go back and get those who were drowning because they were worried that they'd be overwhelmed by people who were trying to climb into the boats. And so they hovered around the outside of the disaster until the screaming died down. And then they rode in and collected the dead. And the tragedy of London is that London is covered in half-empty churches, half-empty cinemas, full of people who who don't have the compassion to walk out of the church and invite anybody into the lifeboat. They're hovering around, waiting until the screaming dies down. And certainly for our church in London, we've said to ourselves, we are not going to do that. We are not going to sit here half empty and just wait till the screaming ends. And I'd encourage you to do the same. It is not acceptable to have half this seminar empty. It's not something you just learn to live with. You row back and you do what you can to pull people out of the water into the lifeboat. Now I don't know what that means for you. I don't live here. I don't know whether that means you invite some friends, you know, take a friend for lunch and chat about what you did in the gospel, a straight-up conversation. I don't know whether you invite people to come to church with invitations, I don't know whether you plan a barbecue. I don't know whether you do a Lions v All Blacks barbecue thing and give a testimony. You ask the minister. I don't know whether you plan some Christmas drinks and you invite the minister to come along and talk about what Christmas really means. I don't know whether you knock on all the doors of your street. But I tell you one thing: you don't do, and that's nothing. You don't just sit here and enjoy church week by week and wonder how the seats are going to get filled. You row back and you find people are drowning in sin and you invite them and you do your best to bring them into salvation. But the reason you want to do that is because of God. It's the wholeness of God that shows you your sinfulness. It's your sinfulness that then is ready for forgiveness. And once you've been forgiven, you put your hand up and say, yeah, I'll go. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Let me give you a moment of quiet. Perhaps you want to begin by thanking God for dying for you on the cross, for your forgiveness. Almighty God, we, whether perhaps for the first time ever, or well, maybe it's the millionth time we want to say thank you for sending Jesus, thank you that despite everything, despite the filth in our lives of all different kinds, thank you that He came to swap places with us because you love me, because you love us. Thank you, dear God. And Lord, where we've got a bit lazy or we're a bit frightened or we haven't, we lack some compassion. We pray that, like the prophet Isaiah, you would speak to us now through this passage, show us that you are holy unbelievably holy and wonderful and amazing and how great it would be to be with you as your forgiven people but how terrible to arrive in your presence unforgiven like landing on the surface of the sun unprotected. And so Lord, thank you for showing us how filthy and sinful we are. Our attitude to you has been appalling Now we want to say sorry. Thank you that you sent Jesus to die in our place on the cross. So he was treated like us and punished so we can be treated like him. Children of God, acceptable to you. Thank you so much for taking the blast on the cross in our place. (coughs) And So whether for the first time or the millionth time we want to put our hand up and say, here am I, send me. Please would you send us out from this place looking for opportunities, looking for conversations at work with our friends, trying to find a way to invite people into the lifeboat to come and hear about Jesus to find salvation please Lord help us not to be satisfied with a half empty room help us to have compassion for those who are dying in sin help us not to sit here complacent but to do whatever we can to reach the lost we ask you that they too might discover the wonder of your holiness the horror of our sin but the joy of the freedom of forgiveness we ask all these things for your glory alone Amen